0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter and the sixth verse. The sixth verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, this comes, you remember, as a part of this great and comprehensive statement which the apostle is making here in verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That is the complete statement. Dean Plumtrell's hymn is a very good one, but you notice it was incomplete and inadequate. One faith, one church, one faith, one Lord, he goes on repeating, and he's quite right. But he doesn't tell us everything that the Apostle is careful to tell us here in these three verses. And as we've seen, as we've been examining them, it is essential that we should take the complete statement. The Apostle is appealing to these these Ephesians, And through them, appealing to us and to all Christians at all times and in all places, uh, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says that's the first thing that you must inevitably be concerned about after you have realized this great doctrine, the doctrine which he has been putting before them in chapters 1, 2, and 3. They've now got to apply that. And this is the thing we've seen, and I must go on repeating it, this is the thing that he puts first. The thing that should be most obvious and evident to all of us who have any kind of grasp of Christian truth and doctrine is this great doctrine and principle of the unity of God and Christ's people, the unity of the Church. And he says you must endeavor with all your might and main to preserve it, to guard it, to keep it. And in these verses, as we've been seeing, he's giving us reasons for doing that. Everything he says about your position as Christians and as members of the church ought to urge you and to drive you to do that. And here he gives them these seven big reasons you remember. Uh, he groups them together in this way. The first three around this Holy Spirit One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. The second three around the sun. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we've been working them out together. But now he comes to the climax. One God and Father of all. Who is above all and through all. And in you all. The apostle here, I say, uh, rises to the climax, to the highest and the greatest height of all, God, the eternal Father. Now, there is nothing which is more characteristic of the uh, way in which the apostle uh, writes uh, to these churches as the way in which he uh, so constantly rises to this particular climax. It's very interesting to watch his method. He has another one, for instance, which is almost identical in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Romans, where he's been outlining the great cause of the church and showing how there was a temporary blindness had fallen upon Israel and yet that God's great purpose was ever sure. So he goes on and says... Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable of his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Now, the apostle, I say, does that always. He doesn't stop at the Son, like so many Christian people are tempted to do. He always goes on to the Father. And, of course, he must. You notice the order that we have in these three verses. The apostle takes them in the experimental order. Here are we in the church. Well, we naturally think first therefore of the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit brings us to the Son, because he was sent to glorify the Son. So starting with the Spirit, you must go to the Son. Yes, but uh, why did the Son come? Why did the Son come into the world? And the answer is, the Son came into the world to glorify the Father. As he says repeatedly, not to glorify himself, but to glorify the Father. So any consideration of the Son must lead us to the Father, if it is a true consideration. Now, we might very well spend the rest of the morning on that, because there is a great tendency at the present time to fail to remember to do that. There is a school of theology very popular known as the name of Barthian, Uh, which uh, emphasizes what it calls the Christocentric aspect of all this. And of course, in a sense, it is right to do so, but we must never stop at the Son. The Son brings us to the Father. And so the apostle, having started with the Spirit and having outlined the doctrine of the Son, goes on to the climax, to the end. God, the Father, who is above all and through all, and in you all. Now he again, you see, wants to show how everything in connection with our Christian salvation suggests this element of unity. And he does so, as we see, in persons, in in terms of the persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity. Each person in the Trinity is concerned about us and about our salvation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the great teaching of the Bible everywhere. That each one of them has an aspect of this work and each one cooperates with the others in order that our salvation may be brought about. Now, how important it is for us to remember this and to realize this. The apostle is encouraging these Ephesians to do that. He says, I want you to keep this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But you see, he doesn't do that by immediately talking to them about themselves, as it were. No, no, what he does is to remind them of the great objective truth concerning their salvation. And more and more, it seems to me, that this is the key to most of our problems. Most people who are in trouble in the Christian life, I find more and more, are in trouble because they're too subjective, because they spend too much of their time looking at themselves and feeling their own spiritual pulse, as it were. Oh, the cure to most of the ills and diseases of the soul is to look at the grand objective truth, the glory of our redemption and of our salvation. You know, my friends, if you and I only realized this morning that the three blessed persons in that Holy Trinity are intimately and actively concerned about us and our salvation, it would revolutionize our thinking. But that is the teaching. That is the truth. Away back before time in that eternal council between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this whole matter was planned and purposed. And in the fullness of time it was put into operation. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in this and are concerned about us. Now that's what the Apostle is saying here. You are members of the Church, he says. And because you are members of the Church, you are in relationship to the Spirit and the Son and the Father. And if we only realize this as we should, Well, then we will see that this question of unity is quite inevitable and unavoidable. There will be no need to argue about it. There will be no need to set up vast organizations in order to try to produce it. The way to get unity is to preach the gospel, not to set up new offices and organizations. It's something that results from a comprehension and understanding of the truth. Very well, we have been considering the part played by the Holy Spirit and the part played by the Son and each time we have seen that this principle of unity comes out. But now, we come to the Father. God, one God and Father of all. Now, am I, I wonder, mistaken when I suggest again that there is a curious tendency for people to forget this. The church, after all, is the church of God. There are cults which talk about the church of Christ, and there is a sense in which the church is the church of Christ, but the term used in the Bible is the church of God, which is at Corinth, for instance. The church of God. We mustn't, I say again, stop even at the person of the Son, We must stop at the person of the Spirit. No, the church is the church of God. Now, that is the truth which we are going to look at together this morning. And how does this help us to understand this principle of unity? Well, let's follow the Apostle. The first thing he says is one God. Now, uh, he means by that that uh, as Christians we realize that there is only One God. Everybody doesn't realize that. The pagan world in which the apostle preached most certainly didn't believe that. Do you remember how he expounds this in his first epistle to the Corinthians in the eighth chapter? Let me read you from verse four. As concerning, therefore, he says, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know, we know, that's to say we Christians know, that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, notice the sarcasm, for though there be that are called gods, which are in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us, there is but one God, the Father, all whom are all things, and we in him." And one Lord Jesus Christ, "...by whom are all things, and we by him." Now, there he is already, you see, producing the other. One God. If there were a multiplicity of gods, there would be division. One would be worshipping Jupiter, and the other Mercurius, and the other some other god, and some this great unknown god." Their towns and cities were cluttered with uh, temples, you remember, to the various gods. That's what Paul found at Athens, as he found everywhere else. And they were all divided up. I'm a follower of this God, and I am the... But he says there's only one God. And because there's only one God, there must be this essential unity. Not only does he mean that, that there's only one God, but he's also emphasizing the fact that God is one. Now, this is a great mystery, but this is of the essence of the doctrine of the Trinity, isn't it? There are not three gods. There is only one God. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The one great treasure which the Jews uh, had to preserve and to protect was this great truth and doctrine concerning the unity of God. God is one. That is why some of the Jews at the beginning were in great difficulties about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ who claimed that he was equal with God and was God. This is that means two gods. No, it doesn't. Now, don't try to understand this. He won't. Nobody can. But it's just the truth as we find it in the scriptures. God is one. One Godhead, but three persons in the Godhead. Not three gods. Not tritheism monotheism, three persons in the one and eternal Godhead. Now, that is obviously in the mind of the apostle here. We recognize uh, the Spirit, we recognize the Son, we recognize the Father, but we say that the three are one. And of course, you can't read your scriptures without seeing that clearly. We read that the Spirit is in us, that Christ is in us, that God is in us. We read that the the, the Spirit has done certain things. You read elsewhere that Christ has done the same thing. You read that the Father has done the same thing. Well, that's just a way of emphasizing this truth, that the three are one. In this great eternal Godhead, three persons, God in three persons, blessed trinity. It's a trinity in unity. It's a Unity, if you like. Well, now that again, of course, em- enforces and emphasizes this same principle again of unity. As the three persons are one, so we who worship them and belong to them are of necessity one likewise. We endeavor, therefore, uh, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by looking at and trying to understand and being amazed at this wonderful doctrine of the Trinity. But now let us deduce certain more practical conclusions from this. One God, he says, well, why? Well, for this reason, that the end and object of salvation is to bring us to God. God. You remember how the Apostle Peter puts that in his first epistle? He says that Christ died for us, that he might bring us to God. Isn't it extraordinary that one has to go on repeating and emphasizing this? The end of salvation is not to bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and did all he did to bring us to God, to God the Father. That is why we pray to God the Father rather than to the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, but the end of all is to bring us to God. Now, that's quite inevitable if you really understand the message of the Bible. Go back to the beginning. God made man in his own image, and men were subject unto God. Yes, but sin and rebellion came in, and that led to the fall. And what was the effect of that? Well, its chief effect was this, was to separate men from God. So as sin is that which separates us from God, salvation is that which brings us back to God. So this is the grand end and object of it all. What's the purpose of salvation? That I should be happy? That I should get help in certain... Of course it does all that. But if I don't realize that the chief end of my salvation is to reconcile me to God and to bring me to God and to enable me to enter into the presence of God, I haven't understood it truly. That's the chief thing. That is where Christianity differs from all the cults and the other religions. They always center on men, some benefit for men. But this doesn't. This starts with God and everything leads to God. One God. Very well, I say, that is the great end and object of salvation. And, of course, as we realize that, we shall realize this. That all of us who are Christians therefore obviously come together to the same God. And if we come to the same God, how can there be these divisions? One God. Yes, but let's look at it in another way. We have also one object of worship. And it is the same object of worship. The apostle has been dealing with this several times in earlier parts of this great epistle, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, For through him, Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father, the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew was a worshipper of God, the Gentile was a worshipper of one of these pagan deities that has no being at all, one of these people that are things that are called God, as Paul puts it. But now all that's gone, and we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit, the same Spirit, unto the Father. Again, isn't it obvious, if we only realized this, unity would be quite inevitable. In heaven, everything centers round God. Did you notice? Those two chapters we read at the beginning, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, how it all centers upon him, the beasts and the elders, the voices, everything, all the angels. There's a center, and everything converges on the center. And who is in the center? God, the eternal Father. Before him the angels veil their faces. There's perfect harmony in heaven. That is what makes heaven heaven. There's no disunity, there's no discord. Everything is in unison, everything is in harmony. God is all, and all are worshiping Him and bowing before Him. God at the center, and there it is, bliss and joy and perfection. But Paul says even while you were here on earth, you were all worshiping this one God. And you know, if you and I only had the realization of the presence of God, all divisions and distinctions and all schisms would immediately vanish and disappear. In the presence of the glory of God, everything would just pale into insignificance and we'd be lost in wonder, love, and praise. One God, we worship him, the only God, and we all do. There's no need to argue about unity. It's to realize that that makes unity. But not only that, we can put it like this also. It is to this one and same God that we are all going. We are now on earth. We are in the church. Our salvation reconciles us to him. It enables us to worship him. Yes, but we are moving. We are not static. We are but strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are marching to Zion. And where are we going? Well, we are all going to meet and to see the same God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what we're going on to. Let's see how our hymn puts it. One, the gladness of rejoicing on that far eternal shore where the one almighty Father reigns in love forevermore. Oh, that we might realize that we're all thus under God and all going to God and there's only one and it's the same God and nothing else matters. One God. Yes, but he doesn't leave it at that. He says, one God and Father of all. Now, what does he mean by this? Here we've got to be very careful. One God, he says, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, it's very important here to realize that this word all is not in the neuter gender. It's in the masculine gender. That's tremendously important for this reason. When he says God and Father of all, he doesn't mean all things He doesn't mean the creation, the universe, the cosmos, and all its denizens and peoples. He doesn't mean all things. He means all persons. Ah, but wait a minute. Does that then mean literally all persons, every single individual who has ever lived or ever will live? Now, there are people who are prepared to say that it does mean that, and they think they find in this verse, An argument for what they call the universal fatherhood of God, that God is the father of all, and that we as Christians mustn't confine God's fatherhood to ourselves. Uh, But is that so? Well, let's look at it. One God and father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. What is the apostle writing about? Well, he is writing about the church. He is not writing here about the world. He is writing to those who belong to a body, to those who are in Christ. He is writing to Christian people uh, to whom he's whom exhorting to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's not thinking about the world at all. He's thinking about those who have been gathered out of the world, incorporated into the body of Christ, and are members of this mystical body. So the whole reference, the whole context, is to Christian people only. The all covers all Christians and nobody else. Not only that, the very last phrase here, and in you all, ought to be enough to settle it once and forever. That is never a statement that is made about the unbeliever, the non-Christian. God is only in the believer, in the Christian. But to go further and give a clinching final proof, the next verse, the seventh verse, I think establishes it beyond any doubt whatsoever that the apostle is talking about the church. But he says unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And he goes on uh, to deal with the division of gifts and of labors within the body of the church. So the whole time, from the very beginning, he is confining his attention only to the church, to Christian people, and is not saying anything whatsoever about those who are outside. Very well, God is not the father of all men. Christ said of some men, you are of your father the devil, and the works of your father he will do. God has created all. There is a kind of general fatherhood in that respect. But here he is specifically limiting it, as he does everywhere, uh, to those who are in Christ and in the church. All right, but uh, this is the wonderful thing, isn't it? That uh, though we do not believe in the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men... We do believe in the fatherhood of God in the case of those who belong to Christ. You remember how Paul began his whole epistle by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, and his whole argument is that through Christ he has become our Father also. Here's the thing, therefore, that we must look at this morning. That God this great, glorious, and eternal God is our Father. The apostle has been saying that by him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. He said in chapter 3, you remember, uh, this God of whom all fatherhood is named, in heaven and in earth. Say, my dear. And here again he comes back to it. And as I said at the beginning, it's our failure to realize a truth like this that is responsible for most of our troubles and most of our problems. If we but saw this morning by the Spirit that we are the children of God, it would revolutionize our whole thinking and our whole living. And we are. The Apostle Peter, using his own language, puts it like this. He says that we have become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean we've become gods. But we have been given that principle of life that comes out of God Himself. We are made partakers of the divine nature. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is a man who is born again, born of the Spirit, born of God. This principle of divine and eternal life is put into him. He is therefore a child of God. And God is his father. And you see where the principle of unity comes in. We are all as Christians the children of God. We are children of the same Father. We belong to the same family. We belong to the same household. There it was again at the end of the second chapter. He says Here are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Adopted into his family, taken on as children, given the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But how little do we think about these things, and how infrequently do we speak about them? How concerned we are about externals and things that are on the periphery and the circumference, Oh, I say, if we but came back to these centralities, if we but realized the meaning of this particular statement that God is our Father and we do belong to his family and he is looking upon us as his dearly beloved children, how, I say, the whole outlook would be transformed and unity would follow inevitably as the night follows the day. But this apostle... Knows us very thoroughly. He knew these Ephesians. He knows us. And therefore he doesn't leave it merely as a general statement. He comes down to particulars. Have you been looking at this in in anticipation? One God and Father of all. Why didn't he stop there? But he goes on. Who is above all. And through all and in you all. Why does he have this? Is he just throwing words about? Has he just become intoxicated with his own eloquence? Is he just losing control? What he mean? What is this? Oh, no. He's working out what he's already been saying. He brings it to us in detail. He says, oh, I want you to see this. Because if you only get this, it'll solve your problem. That's the way to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Very well, then, he says, let me split it up. Three particulars in this great central truth and doctrine. What does he mean by it? What are they? Well, again, you see, some have looked at this and they've said, oh, well, here again, obviously, he's referring to the doctrine of the Trinity. One God and Father of all, who is above all, God the Father, through all, God the Son, in you all, God the Holy Spirit. So they say he's just winding it up again by putting the doctrine of the Trinity once more. But surely, now you'd be amazed that the uh, great men and learned commentators who've said that kind of thing, probably tending to repeat one another, one says it and the others repeat it, but surely it's a totally impossible explanation and exposition at this point for this reason, that the apostle here is dealing with God the Father, the Father only. It is one God and Father of all who is above all. He is above all. He is through all and he is in you all. He's already dealt with the Spirit. He's already dealt with the Son. He's dealing now with the Father. And these three statements are statements with respect to the Father. What then does he mean? Well, I think that the answer is perfectly simple. Paul has already been giving us an exposition of what he means here in the first three chapters. Let me show you. The first thing he says about God the Father is that he is above all. What does this mean? Well, this means that God is over all. It is a reference to the supremacy of God the Father. To the exaltation of God the Father. To the fact that in the economic trinity, if you like, God the Father is supreme, and the Son has subordinated himself to the Father, though he was co-equal and co-eternal with him, he has subordinated himself to him in the work of salvation, and the Spirit has subordinated himself to the Son and to the Father. But the Father is over all. He is exalted above all. His is the final supremacy. But to what does this refer? Does it refer to the fact that God is the creator? That God is supreme over the whole universe and cosmos? Well, that is perfectly true, but the apostle doesn't mean that here. What does he mean here? Oh, he's thinking in terms of the church. And when he says that God the one Father is above all, he means above all in the church and to the church and to the redeemed. What then is the meaning? It's this, surely. That in this whole matter of the church, in the matter of the redeemed, in the case of you and myself, and all of us who are in this body of Christ and in this blessed unity, God the Father is the originator of it all. Above all, it is his grand purpose. It was his design. Now, let me show you how the apostle has already been saying all this and expounding it to us. Go back again to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed, he says, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when he begins, you see. And that is where you must begin. He's about to expound Christian doctrine. He's about to unfold the the amazing thing that God has done in the church. Well, who's done it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with him. But listen to him as he goes on. Verse 4. According as he, God the Father, hath chosen us in him, God the Son, before the foundation of the world... Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, God the Father. He's thought of it, he's planned it, he's purposed it. It all comes from him. And then you notice this significant phrase at the end of verse 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. That's it. Above all, the will of God. It is God who thought it, conceived it. Planned it, originated it, designed it. Overall, above all. But then he puts it still more explicitly in verses nine and ten. Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. What a conception! Do you remember it? That this great eternal God in his glory and infinity and ineffability should have purposed in himself to look at you and to redeem you and to take you out of sin and Satan and hell and put you into the body and... Adopt you into his own family. He did it himself, according to the purpose of his own will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. God, the Father above all, he's over all. And what was the purpose? Well, here it is in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God the Father still, might gather together in one all things In Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Well, now, there it is, you see, perfectly plain and clear. The apostle is here in chapter 4 dealing with the question of unity, isn't he? And he says he has an argument about unity. One God and Father of all who is above all. Yes, and a being above all and in his plan and his purpose. This is what he has decided that he is going to reunite to gather together in one, all things. Why, says Paul, there's no need to argue or appeal about unity if you have realized what is the purpose of God, the Father who is above all, and if you realize that his purpose is to reunite, to head up again in one, that which has been scattered and divided by sin, why, this unity and schism will be utterly impossible. You'll never allow yourself at any moment to be in a position in which you are causing division. God's whole purpose is to reunite. He is above all, and he has planned and he has purposed this gathering together again. But he says, secondly, is not only above all, but he's through all. What does this mean? Well, he means that he acts through all. He is energetic, you know. This, through all, if you like, is an account of God's providence. In other words, I can put it to you like this. What he is saying here, that it is God who pervades the whole life of the church and ultimately sustains it. It is the energy of God that has brought the church into being and keeps the church in being and will hold it in being until the end. Well, let the apostle expound himself. You've got it all at the end of chapter 1. Do you remember that having thanked God for these Ephesians, he tells them that he's praying for them. And what's he pray for them? Well, here, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And, listen to this, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who that believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ? Do you remember it? He says, this is the thing I want you Ephesians to realize is the greatness, the exceeding greatness of God's power to us who that believe, the energy of the might of his strength that is in you. It's that power that brought you out of darkness into life. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, he's quickened you. He's raised you from the dead. The energy of God. No man would be saved but for God's energy. It's he who quickens and rises. We've worked it out in chapter 2. But he didn't stop at quickening us. He maintains us. He keeps us going. And there's nothing more important, says Paul, to these Ephesians than that you should know this exceeding greatness of his power to usward that believe. And you see, it's in all of us, the same energy, the same life, the same power. It's in us all. It's one. We are being driven, if you like, by the same energy, the same engine. Listen again to a hymn putting it. One, the light of God's own presence o'er his ransomed people shed, Chasing far the gloom and terror, brightening all the path we tread, one the object of our journey, one the faith which never tires, one the earnest looking forward, one the hope which God inspires. He threw all the energy of God so that Paul in writing to the Philippians, you see, can say something like this. Work out your own salvation, with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, the energy of God, in sanctification, in everything. He's through all. He's above all. He's through all. And finally, he is in you all. Most amazing thing of all. You see, it means nothing less than this. That God the Father, like God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is in us. We've seen it in chapter 2. Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The church is the habitation of God. He dwells in us. Do you remember our Lord had already taught this in John fourteen twenty three? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The Father and I, he says, will come unto him and will make our abode with him. There it is in all its wonder and amazement and its glory. But God the Father is in us. And we cannot contemplate that and realize it without being one. Oh, it's not surprising that our Lord in his high priestly prayer should have prayed like this. That they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they also might be one in us There it is. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all, that the world outside might know that God sent the Son to redeem us, and that he loves us even as he loved the Son. My dear friend, have you contemplated this great matter? Have you considered God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in your redemption? Have you seen that the world as this makes us one, oh, that we might catch this vision, might see something of it this moment? The end of all doctrine is to lead to the knowledge of God and the worship of God. And your knowledge is a mockery if it doesn't lead to that. If your spirit is not humbled, if you are not loving, if you are not concerned about this unity, you have an intellectual knowledge that is barren and may indeed be even of the devil. If you really know these things, happy are if you do them. And if we realize the truth about our salvation this morning, one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and being ye all. I can understand the angels bowing and veiling their faces. Let us do so and live ever only to his glory and to his praise. Amen.